Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Grab a seat. Thank you again, Craig and team. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in chapter 130. Got today in Psalms and next week in Psalms, and then a little two week uh, kind of standalone series. And then on September 17th, Pastor David will be starting in Philippians. So looking forward to that. We'll be in Psalm 130 today. You know, as you're turning there, I want to state the obvious that. Words matter. They really do. Words matter. The other day I was driving through the drive-thru, getting some food, and uh, talking to the young man who was helping me there, and he was, he was doing a great job. I felt like he was kind of going above and beyond and helping me, and so what I wanted to say was, hey, you're the man, which means it's like a, a way of saying, you're awesome, I appreciate you, you're, you're doing a great job, but what I actually said when I went to say you're the man was, you're a man, <laughs> which, you know, in today's uh, climate, just kind of extra weird to say that too, right? Which luckily he was a man, so that was good. Um, no confusion there. But um, yeah, one, one simple word that I got kind of messed up and confused with and totally different meaning. Words matter. More importantly, biblical words matter. Understanding the, the context and the framework with which the author is using a word is helpful for us to have solid biblical theology and, and doctrine. And maybe you say, I don't care about theology and doctrine. Well, the reality is your life as a Christian is going to be skewed and amiss if you don't first start with solid theology and doctrine, which is found right here in the Bible, right? There's a, there's a word in the text of Psalm 130 today that I want to make sure we understand. If we don't have this word, I think we're, we're going to miss out on some, some rich theology and some joy in Jesus, and even it affects the way that we live. So I want to read Psalm 130 and then point this word out to you. He says, Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord for there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And what a great chapter. The word I want us to to focus on, actually, there's two variations of it in this chapter. It's in verses 7 and verse 8. So near the end of verse 7, he says, And with him is redemption in abundance. And then he uses it again in verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. I want to zero in for a moment on this idea of redemption, of redeeming. You know, our idea of redemption is 
different than the biblical idea of redemption. So redemption, we, we typically think of us um, putting ourselves back in a good light, people now viewing as positive because we do something to redeem ourselves, to fix the situation. So maybe you think of the 2008 men's Olympic USA basketball team. They were the what? Not the dream team. They were the redeem team. Yeah, the redeem team. Because in 2004, there was all this excitement. They were going to be great. And we got bronze. Which, I mean, bronze is nothing to shake your head at. But we're the USA, right? Like, supposed to be gold in basketball. So in 2008, it was the redeem team. It was about them reclaiming that status, them performing really well to be back on top. You know, maybe uh, you think about redemption and it's with a, a presentation at work or you're in a, a, a group project at school and maybe the people before you that are presenting don't do such a great job. And so when it gets to you, you feel the burden of weight on your shoulders to what? To redeem the situation, right? To do a really good job. That is not the biblical idea of redemption, And if you miss out the biblical idea of redemption, it'll just prolong you living a life of captivity. Let me give you a a very basic idea of this idea of redemption in the Bible. It's not in your notes, but you guys got this, okay? Here it is. Redemption is release from bondage through the payment of a price provided by another. I'm going to read it again. Release from bondage through the payment of a price provided by another. So if you know the gospel, that should sound really familiar to you. That all of us are in bondage to death, hell, and the grave, to our sin. We're held captive to it. But Jesus, through his death on the the cross, paid the price to release us from that bondage. That's redemption. What I want us to do today, you know, normally we, we walk through the, te- the uh, text very methodically, which is, I think, the, the best way to approach the text, just to go right through it. But today, we're going to use Psalm 130 as kind of a launching point to do a really quick survey of this idea of redemption throughout the Bible. So here's how we're going to do, do it. We're going to look at three passages, and then we're going to see three truths. It'll be a little bit of a ride, but you guys are always up for a good time. We can do this, okay? So first thing we're going to do, turn to the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus. And if you have to use the table of contents today, there's no shame in that. It is the second book of the Bible, so not too hard to find on that first one. So Exodus, and you can go ahead and turn to chapter 3, but I'm going to just give you a little bit of context by reading a little bit from chapter 1. But you go ahead and find your place in, um, in chapter 3. So just for context, the Israelites, they're in Egypt, and a new pharaoh has risen to power who doesn't recognize Joseph. He has no respect for God's people. And so it says in verse 11, so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. That down in verse 13, it says, they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So it's not just that the, the Israelites are having to sweat a little bit. No, they're being put into captivity. They are slaves. They're being abused and 
ruthlessly oppressed. If you flip to chapter 3, where you're already at, the Lord shows up to Moses in a burning bush, has Moses take off his sandals, he's on holy ground, and look at what he says in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Now, I love this passage for several reasons, but one of them being, it reminds, the, reminds me that when I struggle with my prayer life to hear God, I'm in good company. Think about it. God over and over tells Moses, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set my people free. I've heard their cry. These are my people, and I'm going to use you to do it, but I'm going to do it. And Moses goes, but who am I to go and release them? And God's like, you didn't hear me. I'm going to do it. Actually, if you read chapters 3 and 4 in Exodus, at least 22 times God says, I'm going to do this. These are my people. Now flip over to chapter 6. We're still, I'm still considering this our first passage. But look over in chapter 6 just briefly in verse 6. They've already, Moses has already gone to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh won't let his people go. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, sorry, dad jokes. And God's speaking to Moses again. He says in verse 6, Therefore tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will, here's our word, redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. He's going to redeem them. And if you continue reading in the book of Exodus, you remember the 10 plagues that the Lord brought on the land of Egypt to eventually redeem the Israelites. And the 10th was the plague of the death of the firstborn. The angel passed through and all of the firstborn in the Egyptians' homes were killed, but none in the Israelites' homes. Do you remember why? The blood of the lamb. The Passover lamb. If you have trouble remembering that phrase, if their blood, if their, excuse me, if their door was covered in blood of the lamb, the angel passed over their home. So what was the key, critical, pivotal moment that God's people were redeemed and set free from bondage? It was the blood of the lamb. That's passage one. Let's look at passage two. Probably a more familiar excuse me, an unfamiliar book, but turn to the book of Hosea. Again, you can use a table of contents, no shame. I love hearing those pages turn. The book of Hosea. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, I'm telling you those. So if 
you go too far or stop too short, you can find it. And I would love for you to, again, turn to chapter 3 as well. Hosea chapter 3. And as you're finding that, I'm going to again give you a little bit of context for what we're about to read. So in Hosea 1, Hosea is, he was a prophet of the Lord. And listen to what God says to Hosea. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Yep, you read that right. Don't worry, parents, I'm not going to get too crazy here. But God tells his prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. I remember I was in college the first time I studied this book, or for that matter, read this book, and I thought, my home church left this out in the children's ministry. Like, I don't think we ever covered this section. It's kind of fair, though, right? He has him go and marry Gomer. And the reason is, God says right there in chapter 1, he says, this is a picture, it's an image, a metaphor of what's going on with me and my people. So Hosea represents God, a faithful husband, and Gomer represents the people, an adulterous wife. And he's saying, that's what my relationship with you is like. It's heavy, right? He's saying, I'm faithful and you keep running to find satisfaction in these other things. You keep running away from me. If you keep reading in chapters one and two, you find out that they had some children together, but she is still promiscuous. Even though they're married and have kids, she continues in her ways of a prostitute. So much so that she eventually finds herself captive, enslaved again to another man and to her sinful passions and ways of life. But look what happens in chapter three. Verse one of Hosea three. Then the Lord said to me, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. He's talking about going, Hosea going and finding Gomer. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. That seems a little weird, raisin cakes, right? Have this weird raisin cake passion. Now, what was going on? This is probably a Canaanite ritual that the Israelites, as they were going and worshiping other gods, that was part of the, the cult ritual was to eat these raisin cakes. And so it's not that raisin cakes were bad. It's that the worship was bad. It was idolatry. So God has Hosea go pursue, go chase after Gomer. He says, just like I keep chasing after my people, even though they keep enslaving themselves to the wrong things. But look what happens in verse four, excuse me, verse two. So I bought her, Hosea talking here. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man. And I will act the same way toward you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So technically, we don't see the word redeem in this text. But is this a redemption story? You bet it is. She's in bondage. And through his own payment, he releases her. He frees her from that bondage. All right, third passage. 
Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Obviously, if you get to 2 Peter, you've gone a little too far. James is before 1 Peter. Help you out a little bit there. But 1 Peter, we're going to look in chapter 1, starting in verse 13. I'll give you a moment to get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And all our kids in Awana are probably dominating this right now because they're so good at going through Scripture. I love it. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Peter, writing to Christians, says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting from Leviticus there. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now we can lean in here a little bit in verse 18. For you know that you were redeemed, there's our word again, from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your purpose, excuse me, so that your faith and hope are in God. So the purpose of all that would be that our faith and hope are in God. Man, that's a beautiful passage. The gospel is all over that. So we've seen our three passages. What are the three truths we glean about redemption from those passages? And really, these three truths are prevalent and relevant in all of the passages we just looked at. Number one, biblical redemption is God-centered. It's not about me. It doesn't start with me. No, it's about God, and it starts with God. It flows from God's heart and is meant to lead us back to God's heart. Biblical redemption is God-centered. Think about back in the book of Exodus. Whose idea was it to redeem the people of Israel? It was God's idea. He showed up to Moses. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I see their need. I see their struggle. I'm going to redeem them. And then if you remember in chapter 6 that we looked at, he says, I'm going to redeem them. I have this outstretched arm. I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them, rescue them. And he says at the end of that passage we looked at in chapter 6 of Exodus, the reason is that they will know, the, the Lord speaking, he says that they will know that I am the Lord. They're going to know there's no other God like me. Think about in Hosea. Gomer did not ask to be redeemed. She wasn't looking for it. But Hosea, representing God in his own kindness and mercy and love, went and pursued her even though she didn't deserve it. If you remember, at the end of that passage we looked at in chapter 3 of Hosea, he says, the point is, excuse me, the point is that they will eventually come to worship the Lord and be in awe of the Lord and David his king, which we know is ultimately messianic, talking about Jesus. 
that God redeems his people. He pursues his people so that we will be in awe of the Lord, that we'll worship him. Think about in 1 Peter, what we just read. It's God-centered. So it begins with God where it says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So before the world was even created, God had a plan that God the Son, Jesus Christ, would die on a cross to redeem us from our sins. Long before you and I made a mess out of our lives, he chose that he would make a mess out of his life. It started with him. And he says the reason is, where does it lead us back to? The end of verse 21 in 1 Peter 1 is, so that your faith and hope are in God. So it's not just that we're, we're redeemed so we can do whatever we want. No, we are redeemed so that our faith and hope are in God. Biblical redemption is God-centered. Now, why, why does that matter? It seems kind of like an, an abstract, at least to me, kind of an abstract point. Why does that matter? Think of it this way. Think about our solar system. The sun is the largest object in our solar system. I'm trying to help you school kids out, you know what I mean? I'm just kidding. It's the largest object in our solar system. And the, the larger the object, the greater the mass, the greater its gravity, the greater its effect on other objects. So the sun, as the largest object in our solar system, everything else in the solar system centers around the sun and is affected, is pulled in, is held together by the sun. It draws us in. If you have a worldly view of redemption that it's about you, like, you know what, I kind of redeemed myself, I'm pretty awesome, that's why God loves me, and you have this idea that God redeems you or that you redeem yourself, though you can't, so that you can go and do whatever you want. You know what? That puts you at the center of redemption and it leads you astray from God and your world will begin, your solar system, if you will, will begin to fall apart. The greater your understanding, the right size understanding that God is at the center of redemption, it draws you in closer to his heart. His effect on you is greater, the greater your understanding that God is worthy of all the glory and praise and honor because he is the author and the finisher and the purpose of redemption. I love what uh, John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So again, redemption flows out from God's heart and it's to bring us back to him. What we read in Psalm 130, he says, Lord, if you counted our sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared or revered. See, a right understanding of God's redemption draws you to the heart of God. Second point we see from all of these texts is this. You contribute nothing to your redemption except the sin which made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your redemption except the sin which made it necessary. So that's actually an old Jonathan Edwards quote, one of the greatest minds that American world has ever seen, the world has ever seen. But and he says, what I've done this morning is just replace his word salvation with the word redemption because it's still true. Think about in all of those passages. What did Israel contribute to help themselves be redeemed? Nothing. Actually, when Moses showed up and God was going to use Moses to redeem the people, they started whining. 
Right? Come on. I know it's getting harder now that you're here, Moses. That didn't contribute anything. No, God redeemed them. He performed all those miracles. And he provided the lamb so that they could be passed over in God's wrath and instead receive God's mercy and grace. Think about in Hosea. What did, what did Homer, excuse, I keep saying Homer, I did it last service too. <laughs> what did Gomer contribute to her redemption? Nothing. Nothing. It wasn't like she's like, oh, Hosea, good to see you. I got a 10 in my wallet. Nope. Nothing. He saw her in her need, went and pursued her, and out of his own goodness and desire, bought her back, redeemed her. She didn't contribute anything. Think about in First Peter, he doesn't say, you know, you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, not with, or he doesn't say you weren't redeemed, you know, by just being awesome. No, he says, you were redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Amen. So you weren't redeemed because you were pretty good. You weren't redeemed because God was impressed with you. You weren't redeemed because you added some good works to Jesus' work on the cross. No, you're redeemed because Jesus' blood was spilled for you. All you and I contribute to it is the sin that made our redemption necessary. I grew up in uh, North Florida, and there we have the Okefenokee Swamp, which is a really fun word to say, Okefenokee. And uh, you can Google it later if you're, if you're bored. You can Google it now. But uh, Okefenokee Swamp, there are alligators everywhere. Like, I don't think I can exaggerate the amount of alligators and the moccasins you're going to see, like, when you go there. I, I look back and think, I'm kind of surprised our parents took us fishing there. Like, we did that. And there's just gators everywhere. I remember one particular time, we were with a bunch of churches from a bunch of families from our church, and uh, the Connor family was in front of us, and their little girl, as we're cruising along in Okefenokee Swamp, the little girl fell into the water. But before we could even really realize what happened, her dad jumped out of the boat and had them both back in the boat, which of course tears and followed, and it was kind of this dramatic moment. But it was it was that quick that he jumped out and had her back in. She was like I don't mean this silly. She was had she stayed in the water. She's about five years old. She for sure would have died. Like it's not like oh maybe no she it would have been bad. That's where she was what she was headed for. But her father was willing to rescue her. She didn't kind of grab onto the boat and like, hey, dad, I'm gonna, if you could just lend me a hand. No, he jumped in and threw her into the boat. <laughs> you contribute nothing to your redemption but the sin which made it necessary. You and I were bound for hell to experience eternal damnation, set apart, or, uh, separated from the love of God. But Jesus willingly rescued us even though we did not deserve it. Though it's our own fault that we were bound to hell anyways. Here's where my little story about the Okefenokee Swamp is way more lame than the gospel, is Jesus didn't just risk everything to rescue us. No, he gave everything to rescue us. He died for you and I to redeem us. 
And what is the significance of that? Why does that matter? If you feel like you contribute something to redemption, so you know, I'm, I'm pretty good, so that's why I'm saved, then every time you sin, you're just going to push yourself further away from God because you're going to feel like, well, I got to redeem myself a little bit more to get back in his good graces. So that's, that's a false moral therapeutic gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, man, like Peter says, I don't want to keep living in sin because he's redeemed me from that sin. But also when I sin, because I know it was all, the whole debt was paid for by Jesus. Anytime I sin, rather than just running from Jesus, I go, Jesus, that sin is a fresh reminder of how wicked and sinful I am. And you knew it all the time and you still die for me. Jesus, apparently your grace, your mercy is better than I could have ever dreamed. You contribute nothing because he contributed everything. Third point, no captivity is too deep to keep you from the redeeming hand of God. Think about the Israelites in Egypt. Nothing about their situation said they should have a chance to a chance to be redeemed, to be released from bondage. But even the most powerful army in the world at that time in Egypt stood no chance against the redeeming hand of God. No chance. Think about Hosea as, yeah, and Gomer as horrific and terrible and cyclical as Gomer's sin was. It was not too horrific for Hosea to redeem her. And God said, that's the picture of my love for you. No sin, no captivity is too dark or too deep that my love won't reach down and pull you out of with his redeeming grace shown to you on the cross. Think about in 1 Peter. He told them twice, he references their former way of life that they inherited from their ancestors. So again, this, this generational sin that has shackles over them. Peter says, even that has been redeemed through the precious blood of Christ. You are never too far for the redeeming hand of God. In Isaiah chapter 52, God asked the question, he says, is my arm too weak to redeem? Or do I have no power to rescue? What a cool picture. It's like God's flexing. He's like, do you see this bicep? <laughs> Nothing can keep you from the redeeming hand of God. No sin too far. I'll say it this way. No debt of sin is too sizable for him to pay. No chains of shame too strong for him to break. No depth of despair too deep for him to retrieve you. No mountain of guilt too high for him to get you. No captivity to sin too complex for him to deliver you. His arm is not too short to save. So in summary, what have we seen? through all these passages. One, biblical redemption is God-centered. Two, you contribute nothing to your redemption except the sin which made it necessary. And three, no captivity is too deep to keep you from the redeeming hand of God. So because we don't want to be Pharisees and just know a bunch of stuff but not actually live it out, really quickly, I want to give you four things we do in response to those truths. They're not in your notes, but again, you guys got this. Real quick, number one, walk with him. He redeemed you from your sins. And you're not enslaved to it anymore. You're not enslaved to the, the condemnation of sin. He set you free, so why would you go back to it? Walk with him. I have a little video I want to show us very briefly to help you with this idea. 
number of times I've watched that and still laugh. So good. So good. You know, is, sadly, isn't that too good of, or too real of a picture of our spiritual lives? God has set us free. He's redeemed us. Jump right back into it. Also, do you see, like, we're really good at wrecking ourselves. We're not good at redeeming ourselves. So walk with him. Second thing we do, we enjoy him. I mean, that's really, if you never read the book of Hosea, I encourage you to read it. That's so much of the theme of Hosea is that he's redeeming us. He, he, he's re, he has redeemed us. He's drawing us to himself to enjoy him. Amen. These idols that we keep running after to find satisfaction, they're always less fulfilling than walking with God. So enjoy, walk with him and enjoy him. Number three, because he's redeemed us, trust him. Trust him. If you are a Christian, it means trust that he has enough redemption power to save you and to keep you forever. It's an abundance versus scarcity mindset. Do you remember in chapter 130 of Psalms, he, he says, with him, with the Lord, is redemption in abundance. What a cool picture. That God is not short on redemption. It's not like it's like, oh, Brandon, hey, we got a, that's kind of backlog. It's in California off the coast there. And so uh, give us a few months and we'll get that to you. No, it's in abundance. So rejoice and trust that his redemption is enough. If you don't know Jesus, call out to him and trust him for salvation. That again, he can redeem anyone from anything. Trust him. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need redeeming. I trust that your sacrifice on the cross was enough to pay the price to release me from bondage. Jesus, I trust in you. Would you be in charge of my life? You will find him a great savior. Number four, what do we do? We remember him. We remember him. Remember what he did for you. Remember that even today, he wants you to walk in his abundance of redemption. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message.